The people united will never be defeated. Opponents have the volume. This fight is not about killing babies. Supporters have the numbers. It's about protecting human lives. Florida's strictest abortion bill ever is heading to the state Senate. When what happened last night, um, again, we're, we're not to the finish line. The war over water. Control where the discharges go, when they go. We flooded them with emails and phone calls. A crowd at the Capitol fighting for the Everglades. Triumph over term limits. Florida City's mayor for 38 years, Otis Wallace, just got four more. The big news of the week and the newsmakers live this week in South Florida. Good morning. Glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putnam. I'm Glenna Milberg. We begin with one of the most controversial and divisive bills this legislative session now headed to the Florida Senate. The full House vote on what would be Florida's strictest abortion bill in recent history came after midnight Thursday, along with protests from the gallery that disrupted debate hours of debate that changed no minds. The bill limits abortions after 15 weeks without exceptions for victims of rape or incest that result in pregnancy. It does provide exceptions for medical conditions that threaten the life of the mother and for fetal, uh, fatal fetal abnormalities where the child would die at birth or soon after. Such was the case for State Representative Robin Bartleman, Democrat from Weston. That amnio is given the earliest at 16 weeks. A bodily anomaly scan, the earliest can be given is at 18 weeks. So when you get that terrible, heartbreaking news, you don't even have a decision because the state of Florida has already taken it away from you. Think about that, Floridians. Think about that. When you get that news, you and your husband and your family have no decision. Representative Bartleman joins us live from Tallahassee now. It is great to have you. Um, we were together post midnight after that vote. Um, yours, Representative Bartleman, was one of those speeches among several from people, women, who shared really intensely personal experiences on both sides of the debate. And, and I wonder if you would just fill viewers in for us to start on, on what that was about. Well, I have to tell you that never in a million years would I ever think that I was going to have an abortion. And the story I shared last year, and then I shared more of it this year, had to do with finding out that my much wanted pregnancy, a pregnancy that I went through infertility treatment to get, that my fetus had an abnormality. And my husband and I were told at that time that we would have to make a decision as to whether or not to keep the pregnancy. And so I spoke about the decision-making process we had. I'm a special ed teacher, so I wasn't afraid of that, but I was afraid of what would happen to the fetus if it had a 50-50 chance of uh, survival rate. What would happen if I found out that the fetus had its uh, the two sides of its brain fused together, or if the fetus, once upon birth, we found out that the, we needed to be on a kidney transplant list, or what would happen to my family? What would, what, would we be able to afford this? Would we be able to get all of the therapies? Would we have to keep our job? What would the quality of life be for this, this baby that I really wanted? Would the baby sit in pain? It was, it's so heart-wrenching, but it was my decision. It was a decision for me, my husband, 
my doctor, and my God. And now Florida politicians have inserted themselves into that decision-making process. Like I said, I want the women of Florida to be very clear. I want to be very clear with them. They don't think that they're ever going to have to make a decision about an abortion when we know that the numbers are one in four women will have an abortion. But when you get that news, when you get those amnio, result, amnio results, when you find out that there's something terribly wrong after that uh, body scan of the fetus, you are going to have no decision to make. Uh, Just think about that. Uh, Robin, it's such a scary thought. Yeah. Let me jump in here, if I may. Uh, I watched some of your speech on tape from the Florida Channel. It was just tremendously riveting. The House hung on every word that you said afterwards and after the vote. Did some of your colleagues, Republicans, Democrats, come up and speak to you in a personal way to respond to your, your story? Yes, I think um, definitely. We all empathize with all of the stories we heard and all of the choices that women had to make. We had women share on the floor for the first time that they were raped. Um, it was just such an emotional night. And yes, and the, I think what happens is, is people don't think that it's going to happen to them. And I said on the floor, but for the grace of God, there go I. And when you talk about these decisions, there are gray areas. There are, there are very emotional decisions to be made. An abortion, having an abortion is a very personal decision. And I can tell you, it's a very difficult decision. I luckily, we went in that day and we didn't have to make it because the heartbeat was gone, but we went in that day and I can tell you up until that last second, I couldn't decide what to do. Hmm. But the fact of the matter is, is that I deserved to make that decision. It was my decision to make. It was my decision with my husband. It was my decision. I had to think about my, my other daughter, Emma. Um, and the Florida politicians are taking that decision away from you. And that's what I want Floridians to hear. So some of the Florida, those Florida politicians are women. In fact, during this program, we will hear from another one of your colleagues who shared her rape and her decision about her abortion too. And we're gonna play that from Representative Tobulski, but uh, right now I, I just wanted to bring up that some of the politicians who are firmly supporting this very restrictive bill are Republican women, one of them who, who sponsored the bill, Erin uh, Grawl of uh, Vero Beach, Republican of Vero Beach, whose floor speech closing out this debate, she said, if a child is too expensive or inconvenient, it becomes acceptable to terminate a child. That is unacceptable. And her, her like so many, she has a faith-based opposition that it seems really no debate can change. And I wonder if you would address that. I'm not going to change Representative Grawl's mind. I, I love Representative Trubolsky and her situation. That's her truth, and she regrets it. And I, my heart breaks for her. I saw her the day after. I went up to the floor and gave her a hug. But the fact of the matter is, it's not that it's inconvenient. It's that children will be born placed immediately on a transplant list. Children will be born that will have absolutely no quality of life. It's more, it's, it's more than expenses. It's about, do you want to bring a child into the world suffering? If you look at the list of fetal anomalies, and it's quite extensive, it's not all what you think. It, like people go, oh, it has to do with you don't want to have a Down syndrome baby. No, 
you, you don't want to have, a, I had a student in my class, which this should have been incompatible with life, but at my school, she had anencephaly. That means she was born with a brainstem. She had no cerebral cortex. She couldn't think. She, there, there was nothing, no feeling, no emotion, no thought process. G-tube, uh, diapers her whole life, uh, respiratory therapy, physical therapy, occupational therapy. There, there has to be something to said about the, the quality of life. And in, in situations of rape, that is such a personal decision. There was testimony about an 11-year-old child, an 11-year-old child. The mother had no idea that the child was being raped by the stepfather. The child had no idea that she was pregnant. This is a child. And by the time the mother found all of this out, it would have been, it was past 15 weeks. And that child would have been forced to have a child under this law and be re-traumatized. Let's talk about sex trafficking victims who can't get away from from their, their pimp, who can't get away from their situation, whoever's holding them, whoever's making them do that. And if they finally break free 15 weeks and two days, they do not have the choice to terminate their pregnancy. This is so personal and it really has to be made between the woman, the doctor, uh, if she's married with her spouse and her God. And not everyone believes in God and not everyone believes that life is at conception. And so if you don't believe in abortion and that didn't work for you or it's against your religion, then don't have an abortion. Yeah. Uh, but for Robin, everybody else, we deserve that choice. We, we, we understand and we understand that argument. We're gonna hear the other one from Representative Barrero in a minute. Let me ask you about this. We have heard for the last year, particularly from Governor DeSantis, talking about the importance, how personal choice is supreme in the state of Florida, that there should be no mask mandates because that violates the right of personal choice and personal responsibility, and Florida is the state of freedom. Uh, does it strike you that that all seems to apply except when it comes to a woman's right to choose whether to have an abortion or not? It's incredibly hypocritical. That's what I have to say to that. I have neighbors that say, I don't want a vaccine. It's my choice, it's my body, what I put into my body. The same goes for the right to have, abortion, to have an abortion, which is healthcare. Women have the right to have a safe, the right to access a safe legal abortion. And it's my freedom and my choice to make that decision. And the fact of the matter is, is that the state of Florida, which is supposedly the freest state, has the most restrictive law abortion ban in its history. So very incredibly hypocritical. Do you think that part of that, if this, this law, this bill, mirrors Mississippi's that's now in front of the Supreme Court, do you feel like this is an element of politics on the way to possibly trying for a ban on abortions outright? Have you heard talk of that in the Capitol? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think this is the first step. I think that this violates federal law under Roe versus Wade. I think it, people say, well, this is a science-based decision. Well, the science says that we don't know what's going on with that fetus until you have that body scan at 18 weeks or until you have that amniocentesis at 16 weeks. Um, and they're, they're ignoring all of that. They're ignoring that families deserve to have the opportunity to make decisions for themselves. Not only that, it's only 
less than 3% of abortions occur after 15 weeks. Right. right. We so I would venture to speculate and say that those abortions are wanted pregnancy, and it's because they've gotten some traumatic, terrible news about that fetus. And they need to make a decision as to for their family, for the quality of life for that fetus. And so it's just upsetting to me that we talk about uh, freedom and liberty and the right not to wear a mask and the right not to have a, you know, a vaccine. Uh, but we're going to go ahead and impose this on the women of Florida. We, it, it, it's so uh, I, I get very emotional because this is so personal for me. Yeah. Thank you. Women watching. Right. Robin, this could think, happen to you. Yeah. Robin, and you are you, stuck now. Sorry. You earned the right to be emotional and to your point of view. And we respect it. And we thank you for your honesty, your brutal honesty and standing on the floor of the Florida House. And now this morning talking about it. Thanks very much. Appreciate you. Thank you, guys. Thank you for everything you do for South Florida and keeping us informed. Thanks. Okay, so the abortion bill goes to a Senate committee tomorrow, and there will be questions there. And one of the most vocal supporters of the bill on the House is going to join us next. In the long debate over abortion rights, one rare, rare area of agreement generally is over the right to abort in cases where a woman got pregnant during a sex crime like rape, incest, trafficking, or by coercion. The bill headed to the Senate has no exceptions like that, despite some of the 14 amendments floated by lawmakers to add something like that. All of them failed. State Representative David Barrero, Republican from Sweetwater, he voted to advance the abortion bill in that post-midnight vote. He is here right, right there with us today. So good to see you, and thank you so much for being with us. Representative, yes. good morning. Glad to, good glad, morning. Glad to welcome you back. Well, you just heard Glenna say that there are no of those uh, exceptions in the Florida bill, which you voted for. Why shouldn't there be exceptions for rape, incest, uh, and other uh, pregnancies committed during a sex crime. So thank you so much for having me, Michael. And um, th this was actually the vote that I'm the most proud of in my tenure here as a state representative in Florida. Um, you know, th those who are for abortion, they um, turn their eyes towards this inconvenient truth. And the reality is, is that unborn children, I, I say children, they're not just fetuses, are persons, they're individuals, just like you and I am. And, you know, Roe versus Wade was decided, you know, nearly 50 years ago. We can understand why where they were at, where they were at, and they didn't come to the conclusion that this was a person who deserves constitutional protections. But where we are today, the advances that we've made with science and ultrasounds, and then the knowledge that these unborn children can suck their thumb at 15 weeks, can feel pain yeah. at 15 weeks. Yeah. Representative Barrero, I'm gonna, I'm sorry, gonna have to interrupt you here. We respect your point of view. We understand, I certainly understand that you're speaking as an article of faith, as a Catholic who believes that life begins at conception. Uh, that's a, you know, a perfectly fine thing to believe and, and we respect it. The question I ask, though, is when a woman gets pregnant in a crime, when she is raped or uh, raped a member of the family, uh, you know, is guilty of incest, 
why shouldn't there be an exception so that that child can be aborted? The mother does not want that child. Well, look, the, the exceptions that currently exist in the law are not nullified. I believe this law is silent as to those exceptions. So, you know, the, the notion that this uh, law doesn't allow for those exceptions, I, I think, are, are based on this premise that, um, you know, they, they don't already exist. Uh, and, and the fact is that these exceptions already exist in the law. Uh, what this law says is that after 15 weeks, the, given the current exceptions that already exist in the law, abortion would be illegal. That's my understanding of it. And what I would tell you is, even as somebody who is you know, adamantly pro-life, I don't think that, have, that and, and again, I respect that experience and, and, and I empathize with those who have gone through that tra very traumatic experience. And as Representative Bartleman uh, you know, was talking about earlier, uh, you know, this is a very, very difficult decision. Uh, however, if you are a person, you deserve the full constitutional protections of the law. No one's going to say to someone who has been born in the product of a, a rape incident that that person should be killed or that the mother of that person should have the right to kill that born person. For the very same reason, you shouldn't be able to abort someone who is the product of, of, of rape. If it's a person, it deserves constitutional protections. And shouldn't be able to deprive that person without due process of law. Um, there, there was a lot of that constitutional um, argument in the debate as well, to your point. But I, I'm interested in, in talking a little bit about the nuances of both science and religion, because um, the science that you're talking about is, is actually debated by some scientists who, who do feel that this uh, a fetus is not viable until well into the second trimester. A and also the Bible is not all that clear. There's a portion of the Bible that says uh, life begins at first breath, which of course wouldn't be till birth. So, so those things aside, um, I I'm interested in this exception uh, that, is, that is very popular, that the exception to this rule countrywide and, and across the aisle is a very popular exception to strict abortion rules. And if you look at the numbers, to Aaron, Representative Grohl's point, very, uh, a very limited percentage of, of those pregnancies, 4%, uh, are in the total number. But if you look at the after 15-week abortions in that very small percentage, half of those in the second 15 weeks, half of them are those who have been raped or victims of incest or human trafficking or coercion. And I think that context is very interesting uh, when it has to do with possible trauma and decision making. Could you weigh in on that, please? Well, I, I would just say this, that this law could potentially save about a thousand unborn children after we pass it, after the governor signs it. Um, even despite the exceptions that, that, that already exist. Uh, so if a, a woman has a, a fatal fetal abnormality, uh, something that could likely lead to a, an imminent death immediately upon birth after the child, um, then she would be able to abort. That's what currently exists in, with that, within that exception. Um, but e even despite that, it is still, it, worth passing this bill because you would save, let's assume that it was 50%, like you said, you would still save uh, at least 500 unborn children every year. I would pass any bill that would save at least one child. And, and this is my fundamental question, you know, Glenn, and I'll ask this directly to you. 
Who were you inside of your mother's womb? What were you when you were sucking your thumb inside of your mother's womb, when you could hear the noises and the music that was playing outside about you? Well, actually, your since you're asking me that, that I, who I, were you? I, will, I will answer that since you asked me, and I don't remember any of that. I don't know that I did, and that that's kind of the thing. We just don't know at that point. Can, can we stop a moment? Because I want to play uh, your colleague, Dana Trabulsi, who is a Republican from St. Lucie County, also revealed something uh, really traumatic during that public floor debate. And, and let's all take a listen to a clip of her story. I've been raped and I've had an abortion. And I was always pro-life until I had a choice. And then I had a choice, and I selfishly made the choice to have an abortion. And it's something that I have regretted every day since. Nobody at Planned Parenthood tried to talk me out of it. Nobody offered me mental health services. Well, can you, um, how do you hear that? How do, do you hear that, well, maybe mental health services really is the headline here? How do you hear that? Uh, look, Dana Trabolsi is a hero. Um, and, and, and just like all those who are sharing their very personal and traumatic even uh, stories that we're sharing on the House floor, their experiences that I cannot relate to and I will never be able to relate to. It took a lot of courage to be able to share those words. But like Dana said, having an abortion does not take away the fact that this is a person and it makes you wonder who this person could have been had i not aborted the reason why there's so much regret post-abortion is because we realize that we're taking the life of an innocent person and if we're taking the life of an innocent person it shouldn't be legal to do so and 50 years have passed versus since roe versus wade and we see the science shows it shouts it is so undeniable that this is a separate individual human being, and therefore it should have constitutional protections. Yeah. And that's why we should pass this, continue to pass laws like yeah. this. Well, I, I, I do want to point out, I obviously am no medical expert, but science is divided on whether that uh, fetus is a viable human being until 24 weeks, which of course, as you well know, is what the law in Florida and most of the United States has been for the last 50 years. Uh, David, let me ask you this question. The Supreme Court uh, is going to issue a decision in the next couple of months on the Mississippi law, which sets a 15 limit, 15 uh, a week limit for an abortion, why did the Florida legislature feel compelled to move forward before the Supreme Court issued its ruling? Well, I would say that we're all anticipating, and by the way, Florida's not the only one. There's actually a small handful of states who have uh, are now moved to pass a 15-week abortion ban in anticipation of Dobbs. And I think we all realize that, that Roe versus Wade and, and the subsequent case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, were uh, decided wrong and they're really untenable legal standards for the states to abide by. Um, if you use viability more and long as time goes by and technology advances, it, it, it will show that Roe versus Wade, it, sh it shouldn't be used because at some point we're gonna see, I mean, we've already seen that children have survived outside of the womb at 20 weeks of gestation. And as science advances and technology advances and the ability to support an unborn child 
outside after he's been delivered, that can very well lead to 10 weeks, then five weeks, then zero weeks. And if you use that viability standard, you probably be able to say that you shouldn't have abortion from the moment of conception because that child is viable from the moment of conception. An, argu know, an argument we will, we will continue to watch when we get to that point. Uh, David Barrera, we appreciate you, and it is great to see you, and thank you so much for being with us to talk about what's, for a lot of people, very difficult to talk yeah. about. We appreciate it. Thanks very much, David. Thank All right. you so much for having me. You're quite welcome. The, the water that flows from Lake Okeechobee is a precious commodity. The farmers want it, conservationists want it too. So a huge fight bubbled up over this week over a bill at the state capitol that some say has the fate of the Everglades at stake. And that is next. As Marjorie Stoneman Douglas once wrote famously, there is only one Everglades, and keeping it alive and healthy takes a constant flow of water south from Lake Okeechobee. And then there are the growers and Big Sugar, who are in this case the competing interests in a Senate bill that would have given them first dibs on that lake water. Hundreds of South Florida boaters converged on the Capitol this week to object and leading them, Eric Eichenberg, president of the Everglades Foundation, who on its behalf maneuvers the powers who be in Tallahassee. Hello to you, so good to have you on the program. Thank you for having me, Glenna. Michael, good to be with you. Eric, it's great to have you back. All right, sort of set the scene here. Glenna was in Tallahassee. I've been following it, though. I mean, here we are well into the session. Suddenly, the Senate president, uh, Wilton Simpson, you know, rolls out Senate Bill 2508, which uh, basically says that the agricultural interests, Big Sugar and others south of Lake Okeechobee, are going to have the lion's share of the water from the lake. I mean, they're going to force the South Florida Water Management District to do that. So pick up the story then. What did you and fishermen and others come to Tallahassee? How did you turn it around? Well, uh, Michael, uh, two weeks ago when that bill was introduced uh, late on a Friday evening, um, once we realized what the intent here was, uh, we immediately mobilized. And uh, these, these fishing guides, these uh, small business owners, uh, representatives of local chambers of commerce, uh, they all rallied and moved up to Tallahassee to make their voices known. The, you, you're exactly right. This is about water. We take for granted uh, our water here in South Florida, but when this bill was introduced, it was clear that the balanced plan that was introduced in the fall by the Army Corps of Engineers and the South Florida Water Management District was going to provide that balance of Lake Okeechobee water to all users from South Florida to the both coasts, east and west, and including the sugar industry to the south. This legislation was clearly an attempt to stop that balanced plan. Why, why, who, who and why? Name names. Well, well, Lake Okeechobee is the water supply for the sugar industry. It's also, as we move water south, it recharges the aquifer, which is the water supply for nine and a half million people that live in South Florida, including uh, Broward and Miami-Dade counties. Uh, so when, again, when this legislation was putting a straitjacket on the South Florida Water Management District to hold water in Lake Okeechobee, that's to the benefit of the industry south of Lake Okeechobee. And from our perspective, and from the governor's perspective, 
we have to stop all of this blasting of polluted water to the St. Lucie Estuary, to the Caloosahatchee. Florida Bay and the Florida Keys is desperate for fresh water. It needs to be stored, cleaned, and sent south through the Everglades. So didn't we, and we, the collective we public, learn that lesson when a few summers ago we saw all this mm -hmm. horrible toxic algae and muck on both coasts and then kind of got a really great education of how to stop it and then it stopped by managing that lake water better and then sending it south. And this is, I'll just throw out there, this is such a complicated yeah. process and a complicated bill. So weren't those lessons learned? We were just looking at video of that yucky green stuff on the water. Isn't that sort of the point set match of not going back to what was? Exactly right. That is exactly the point. From in years 16, 18, 20, we saw toxic blue-green algae, that guacamole uh, um, in the water that was killing fish. It was, um, it was hurting businesses. Uh, we had, there was a hotel operator that testified before the Senate that said he lost, his hotel lost more revenue due to the toxic water from Lake Okeechobee than they did from COVID. So this was clearly a rallying cry to end the practices of dumping billions of gallons of dirty polluted water. Instead, the Lake Okeechobee plan that was released in September is going to give the Army Corps and the state of Florida the flexibility it needs to lower the lake in the dry season, November through May, send water south through the river of grass that Marjorie Stoneman Douglas talked about, under the beautiful bridges along Cayocho, uh, Tamiami Trail, and then ultimately that water makes its way to Everglades National Park and to Florida Bay. That's the balance, Glenna and Michael, that we need within the Everglades. Lake Okeechobee should not be the source of water for one industry. Yeah, Eric, uh, one of your key objections and that of Governor Ron DeSantis, who has been, to his credit, a strong supporter of Everglades restoration, was that this was going to put in jeopardy that huge reservoir that we've been talking about, you've been talking about for years, uh, south of the lake that would filter the lake water, which is full of toxic materials, so that then it could be released to flow south uh, into the Everglades and Florida Bay. So what what is the argument? Explain sort of the argument why that reservoir is just critical to Everglades restoration. Well, when Lake Okeechobee rises, the only option today is for the gates on the east and west coast, the St. Lucie and the Caloosahatchee, they open up. And again, billions of gallons of fresh water is wasted to the Atlantic Ocean and to the Gulf of Mexico. This reservoir, which was authorized by the U.S. Congress back in the year 2000, Michael, we've been waiting yeah. 22 years for this project. Senate Bill 10 in the year 2017 allowed that process to start. Now, this reservoir on 16,000 acres directly south of the lake, once built, will be that new outlet to store that water. We have to clean it because, again, it's polluted from Lake Okeechobee. There are 60,000 acres of wetlands that will remove the phosphorus and the nitrogen so that we can flow clean, fresh water through the river of grass and to the south. This reservoir is long overdue. The bill that was filed two weeks ago was going to deprioritize the, the funding right. for that project that was another argument that we cannot reverse the momentum that we see today. All right, so uh, late this week, there was a little glimmer of hope, and uh, we're going to talk more about that when we talk more with Eric Eigenberg, and we'll come right back. Stay tuned.
We are back with Eric Eichenberg, president of the Everglades Foundation, about Senate Bill 2508, which really complicated, boiled down. It controls the water flow out of Lake Okeechobee and talks about funding that opponents think might really jeopardize that big reservoir project for the Everglades. How'd I do with that headline? <laughs> so um, late, uh, it was Wednesday, I think, actually not that late this week, Wednesday, uh, after uh, all of this rallying and these voices of opposition and the hundreds of voters that went there and you, um, there was an amendment and it, it sweetened the pot a little bit. I'm, I'm frankly not quite sure I understand what that amendment does that's so good, so you take it away. Well, there were a tremendous amount of lines, maybe a couple hundred lines from the original bill that were removed. Um, I mentioned the straitjacket that this legislation was going to place on the South Florida Water Management District. That's been removed. The EAA reservoir that Michael was speaking of before the break, south of the lake, uh, that priority of putting $64 million directly to the construction on an annual basis returns. Uh, there are a few items that uh, they've made commitments on the Senate floor to resolve during the budget conference with the House. Our perspective is the House should not accept the Senate position in those negotiations. So the House of Representatives, when the state budget is being negotiated, should stay strong and not accept 2508. Uh, but I'll say, Glenna, with hundreds of fishing boat captains going to Tallahassee, that is the sign and the, and, and the visibility of the 21st century economy here in this state. We are driven by clean water. We're driven by tourism, fishing, boating. What makes our state great is the outdoors. And we want to ensure that, again, the momentum and the efforts that have been in place for the number of years under Governor DeSantis's efforts remain in place. And that's why this amendment is a good step forward. We're going to watch it now over the next three weeks before session concludes to make sure that no additional harm is, is taken. Yeah, well, hats off to all those charter boat captains, fishermen who lost revenue for a couple of days. I mean, this cost them money to go up there and, you know, and the squeaky wheel did get the grease. But Eric, tell us, I mean, this amendment is good, but it's not really a done deal yet. What do you need to have happen? No, it's not a done deal, Michael. And again, there's about three weeks left of the legislative session when the House and Senate come together over the next week or so to begin the negotiations on the 100 plus billion dollar state budget. This 2508 will be part of that negotiation. So the cleanest way to be be rid of all this is for the for the House not to accept the Senate position. Governor DeSantis has made it clear that he wants to continue to protect the Everglades. We have identified uh, two provisions that need to be that need to come out of the bill including tying the funding for Everglades restoration to the passage of 2508. That's the tripwire that is certainly a concern to many of us. And there is a commitment from the Senate to work through that item. We're going to remain vigilant that it, it certainly does. So we have, as you noticed, no one from the sugar industry with us today. Mm. Uh, certainly this bill is to protect the water for that industry. And I certainly don't speak for big sugar, but certainly need to get their perspective in that they need water. So is there a balance here that gives agriculture and growers what they need while still protecting the Everglades and all the projects? Glenna, that's a great question because the Lake Okeechobee system operating manual that was released in September provides three times the amount of water south to the Everglades and the sugar industry would receive the water it needs. 
the reservoir that we were speaking about uh, just momentarily. When that is constructed, a third of that water from the reservoir will go to the sugar industry. So the sugar uh, industry itself is uh, accounted for as it relates to water from the lake, from this reservoir. But we also have to take into account the two estuaries, the Everglades, South Florida and our drinking water. When, when viewers turn on the tap at home, that's fresh water from the Everglades that must be protected. We need to send that water south throughout the course of a year, not just at times when, um, when the sugar industry or other interests are in need for it. This is a balanced approach. It must remain in place. Yeah, well, to that, we can only say amen. We want to turn <laughs> on the tap and get the water and have clean water and for the Everglades to prosper and for the, all the work you do, Eric, thank you very much. Thanks so much. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Glenna. All right, up next, we're gonna introduce you to Florida's longest running mayor. Otis Wallace of Florida City. He's been in office 38 years and he just got four more. Stay tuned. You know, we all know that we live in divisive political times where people in elective office are often ousted after their first term, not in Florida City. This week, Florida City got a new mayor, same as the old mayor. The re-election of Otis Wallace will give him four decades at the helm of Miami-Dade's most southern city. And we are glad to welcome Otis Wallace to This Week in South Florida. He joins us live from uh, Florida City. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Mayor, welcome. We're glad to see you. Um, good afternoon, and I'm glad to see you guys. Great show. Is, wait, is this your first appearance on this program? I believe it is. No way. In four decades, we are late to this party. <laughs> so um, can, we, can we just crunch some numbers to begin with in Florida City? There, you won by 64% of the vote this week. You were reelected 64% of the vote. Um, that was 532 people out of the 13,000 that live in the city. How, how are you going to get people to engage in those elections, Mayor? Well, you know, I'm, I'm disappointed um, at the turnout in, in all over. Um, with the electorate. I think that in far too many cases, people stand by and don't exercise that right that uh, was fought so hard for. You know, we got to get that changed around. I'm happy that I got the majority of the people that did show up, but I'm always going to be encouraging others to um, participate in the process. Um, Otis, um, uh, you are a huge, but uh, an anomaly in politics. I mean, to have been in office for 38 years uh, it's almost unheard of. So congratulations for the longevity. And I guess, is there a secret? What have you done to be able to re retain the confidence of the voters of Florida City? Well, you know, Florida City is my hometown. I was born and reared here. And I think I know the community very well. And I think at the core of serving a population or people, you must know what their needs are. And I thought, that I had a unique perspective in terms of spending my whole life here to, to know what those needs were and to try to meet them. Well, okay, so that's interesting. Let me, um, I just wanna throw out there, let me preface this question by saying, you know, as a news program, we don't do public relations and and that's, um, that's a, 
a tough thing for some elected officials who appear with us, but we ask questions out of all due respect and public service. And so in 38 years and your hometown, four in 10 people in Florida City still live in poverty. Um, rebuilt after Hurricane Andrew, no doubt, came back from the ashes, but but Mayor, that's a, that's a difficult number for someone who's been in office for four decades. Why are four in 10 people in that city still living in poverty? Well, Florida City is predominantly a farming community. And if you look at any farming community outside the state of Florida, the wages are lower. That's a reality that Florida City, as well as other farming communities, have to face. And there's no magic wand for the mayor to wave to make those wages go up. It's a factor in the overall economy. My job is to get as much value out of what we have to work with as possible. Um, but um, it, it would be nice to have Silicon Valley out there as my tax base as opposed to tomatoes and beans. <laughs> um, but the reality is that farm wages are typically not very high. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Mayor, another element of life in Florida City, as with life in every other city in South Florida, is there are a lot of gunfights. There's crime violence in your city. What are you doing about that? Well, it's going down. That's what we're doing about it. Um, uh, that rate is going down, and I'm pleased to say that. We spent over a quarter of a million dollars in surveillance cameras in high crime areas in our business district, and they are working. Um, we're, not, um, we're not having as much crime, and we're solving a whole lot of the crime that we do have. So we're not just sitting back. And uh, one of the other things that, that concerns me in terms of fighting crime, we have to start earlier. I'm focusing big on grabbing our youth when yeah. they're still manageable and we can still reach them. You give a 17-year-old AK-47, there's not a whole lot at that point that can be done other than put him in jail, which we don't want to do. We want to get our kids on a different track. And we place a lot of emphasis on trying to reach the kids earlier. Mayor, take a minute and, uh, you know, now what you have now that you might not have had in past decades is federal money, post-COVID relief money. Uh, there are some projects underway. Um, take the next minute because that's a pretty much what we have in this program and tell the residents and citizens of Florida City what they can expect, big new things this year. Well, we, 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 we've had um, about $5.8 million allotted to Florida City for COVID relief. But we received a grant of $16.8 million in a competitive grant process to do a lot of work on our roads to make the traffic more manageable as growth increases. Florida City also put $10 million of its own money into this year's budget to revitalize a whole community in Florida City. So we're working very hard to, um, to make things better. I would also mention Florida City had the third highest percentage growth in taxable value in Miami-Dade County. Hmm. So things our tax base is getting away and rising rapidly from the farm community whose whole economy is based on tomatoes. That's rapidly changing. One of the reasons I ran again is to see that through. Yeah. And, uh, and finally, Otis, we know that after that you are the chief administrator of your city, uh, there was a referendum and your voters said, all right, let's bring in a city manager. So in some ways you are um, an antiquarian. I mean, you, you mark the, the end of the mayor as administrator in Florida City. And, uh, you know, what a great run you've had. Well, that was by choice. I supported and always advocated that the city manager's form of government was better for Florida City. 
that was not something that sent me out kicking and screaming. That's something that I advocated, <laughs> that I advocated and supported for. All, right. All right. Well, we appreciate you being with us this morning. We're way too long to get you on the show, but we did, and we thank you and Thanks, congratulate Mayor. you. Thank you very much. Antiquarian. Have a great day, folks. Antiquarian. <laughs> and, I'm a, and I'm an Aquarian. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.